the answer already announced, we're glad for the presence of each and every one. We have visitors. We're grateful you've come. Please join with us in this time of Bible study and worship. And as you do, if you have any questions or, con- or something confuses you, maybe you're even concerned that something's wrong, please bring that to our attention. Because what we want to do here, very specifically, is fi- follow the Bible just as closely as we can. We want to be a church here at College View, like the church that you read about the pages of your New Testament. And we believe we can only be that when we do Bible things in Bible ways, when we teach the Bible accurately and apply it specifically. And so if you have questions or if you have any confusion or concern, please let us know. We thank you for being here. We're grateful for the presence of each and every one this morning. I hope when we leave here, we'll be honestly able to say it was a blessing for us to be together today. Before I get to the lesson, I have a little bit of this I want to attend to. I want to ask Cole, if you will, to come up here uh, uh, to take care of this business for me. Cole, would you do something for me? Oh, good, good. I've got $5 here, and after services are over this morning, would you take that $5 and go over there to the convenience store and buy some candy? Uh, I don't have a car. Well, I mean, we'll get you, we'll get you there. He doesn't have a car. He said he doesn't have a car. We'll get you there. Would you, if we took you there, would you use the $5 to buy candy? Uh, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that'd be okay, wouldn't it? Okay, well, hang on to that $5. Now, i got something else I want to ask you. Before you go over there, before we take you over there to get that candy, would you go out here in the yard and dig up three earthworms, big ones, I mean the big, long ones, big, fat ones, and then eat them? Uh, no. no, you don't want to do that. You say you won't do that. No. Well, it, it was okay when I asked you to spend $5 on candy. You would do that. Because it's easy, but you don't want to eat earthworms. Okay, thanks. All right. What I intended to do there with that illustration with Cole is illustrate what happens whenever we're told to do something. If it's at school or if it's at work, if it's at home, when you're expected to do something that you like to do, something that's easy or pleasant to do, you're ready to do that, right? That's no challenge. In fact, as parents, when you tell your children to do something that they want to do and they do it, that's that's really not any kind of a test of obedience, is it? The real test of obedience comes when we're told to do things we don't want to do, things that are not pleasant, things that are not easy. That's the real test of obedience. Wouldn't you agree? It's true in the home, it's true on the job, it's true in our communities and in our country. It's also true when it comes to serving God. And so this morning for our lesson, we want to ask the question, what do I do when my will and his will don't line up? When his will is different from my will? When the Lord is asking me to do something that's not pleasant, not easy, doesn't uh, you know, come without difficulty? When, when I'm really challenged, what do I do? Because I think you agree, that's the real test of obedience. Just as we illustrated with Cole, he was glad to to take money to spend for candy. That's easy. More difficult to eat worms. (laughs) And so, the same with us. We're not saying that God asks us to do anything like eating worms, but the Lord is asking us to do some difficult, sacrificial things. And that's when we're really tested. That's when our faithfulness is really on display. So, we ask you the question this morning, What do I do when his will is not my will? To answer that challenge, the first thing I want you to do is consider the example that Jesus left for us. We we understand, of course, 
that Jesus is the perfect example in all things. And he is certainly a perfect example in this regard. We know that Jesus' intention was always to do the will of the Father. I mean, it was continually that way. We see it in the things that he did, but he actually claimed it. He, In words, he professed his continual desire to do the will of the Father. In John chapter 4, you may remember the famous incident where Jesus was speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. And uh, he, he spent time talking with her, instructing her, identifying himself as the promised Messiah. Uh, he was there at that well because he was waiting for his disciples. They had been traveling. He was, it had been a long, tiresome journey. He was tired. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He stopped there at the well. He sent his disciples into town to buy food, and he waited for them there. And it was during that wait that he talked to the Samaritan woman. Now, at the end of that discussion with the Samaritan woman, his disciples came back. And they said there in John 4.31, his disciples prayed to him saying, Master, eat. He said to them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Has any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus said to them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. I think this is almost amusing when... When the disciples said, here, Master, have something to eat. Ah, he said, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Oh, they said, we wasted our time going to town. Somebody fed him before we could get back here with food. Jesus wasn't talking about that, was he? Jesus was saying, my meat, that is the, the most important thing. What sustains me, Jesus said, is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. That was what Jesus was all about. Jesus was continually desirous of doing the will of the Father. In John chapter 5, verse 30. Uh, after he had healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, Jesus said in John 5.30, I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. Now, what we're seeing here is that Jesus repeatedly made this claim. This was what his desire was. And I don't think any of us have any doubt that he was speaking legitimately and sincerely when he said those things. In John chapter 6, Verse 38, after the famous miracle of feeding the 5,000, in John chapter 6, verse 38, he said, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Jesus said, that's the whole reason I'm here. I came here to do the will of the Father. And then, even at the Last Supper, in John chapter 14, verse 30, you remember Jesus was meeting with his apostles. This would be his final meeting with them. And in the context of that so-called Last Supper, Jesus said, Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh. As the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. And therefore, we see his desire continue right up to the end. And so, if you were going to be asked the question, do you think that Jesus wanted to do what God wanted him to do? Well, the obvious answer would be yes, right? No doubt about that. We see it by his own words. We see it clearly in the example of the deeds that he did. Jesus always intended to do the Father's will. But the Father's will was not always his will. He always wanted to do the Father's will, but the Father's will and his will, at least at time or a time, was not the same. Now, when you first hear that statement, that might sort of raise red flags. Wait a minute, what do you mean that the Father's will was not always His will? 
Well, I think that we can identify at least one time in his human existence here on earth when his will and the Father's will were not identical. And it's in that text that Caleb read for us earlier from Matthew 26 that we see this. In Matthew 26, beginning verse 36, it says, Then cometh Jesus with them into a place called Gethsemane, and said to the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tear ye here, and watch with me. Think about this for a minute. Uh, think about the things that were about to transpire. And I think that the we see his stress concerning what was about to happen clearly identified. Notice, it says that he began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Another version says he was grieved and distressed. Uh, he said again, my soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. So not only was he feeling this, he even admitted it to his disciples who were with him that he was dreading these things. Jesus knew what was coming. Stop to consider that for a minute. What if you'd been in his shoes? He knew what was coming. For several reasons, he would have known what was coming. First of all, he was from those parts. He had personally witnessed, no doubt, what the Romans did when they executed a person by crucifixion. Because historic, historically, we know the Romans were crucifying hundreds, even thousands of people in this time period. If you offered any resistance to the Romans, they executed you. They executed by crucifixion. And so every Jew in Judea had personal experience of having seen these things take place. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us so, but there's every reason to believe that Jesus would have personally witnessed what it would be like when a man was killed that way, the torture that would have been involved. So when he said he was exceedingly sorrowful, when he was grieved and distressed, that's not hard to believe. He knew what was coming, and from his own experience, he had seen what they would do to a person. But furthermore, of course, Jesus had divine insights, didn't he? And so, while any mortal man might have been able to foresee the coming events and dread them, Jesus, with the perfect eye of divine insight, could look forward to what was coming and really, truly anticipate the horror and the agony that he was about to be put under. Jesus really was sorrowful and distressed and heavy at this time. That's uh, when he prayed this. As that text goes on, Matthew 26, verse 39, He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Again, the second time, he prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he prayed the third time, saying the same words. Notice, he says, not as I will, but as thou will. If this cup, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou will. Do you see a contradiction there between his will and the Father's? His will, at that moment, in his fleshly body, was not to have to endure those things. But not my will, thy will be done. Notice, he said again, thy will be done. Not my will, thy will be done. And he prayed those things three times. Think about that. Again, when you first say there was a time when Jesus' will was not the Father's will, 
I think we see it highlighted here, don't we? I don't think we can deny that that was the case. As he lived in his human body, this was the reality. He was in real torture as he anticipated what was coming. In Luke's account, in Luke 22, verse 44, it says, Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. I'm not a medical expert, and it is... It is somewhat a contested statement as to whether Jesus was literally sweating blood there or not. Luke, the physician, uses that expression. His sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. My thinking is, why would he correlate that to blood if it was not literally blood? Why wouldn't he say it was as great drops of rain falling down to the ground? He said his sweat was as great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Some, Some medical... Authorities say that it is possible for blood to mingle with sweat under extreme stress. It may be the case here. I wouldn't fall out with you about that one way or the other. But at the very least, we know Jesus was under a great agony. Uh, He had an extreme dread of what was about to happen. It wasn't his will to suffer those things. At that moment in time, he wanted... uh, uh, by his fleshly will, to have some means to escape that. Um, the fact of the matter, of course, is that this was the real test of his obedience. Would he obey or not? When under that kind of a severe trial, would he obey? Of course, this is really important to us. When we think about Jesus' obedience to go to the cross, our salvation hung in the balance, if you think about it. Even today, our salvation would have been affected. What if he did not obey? What if he had done his will instead of the Father's will? Of course, we know that that wasn't really in question. His intention was do the will of the Father. He fulfilled the will of the Father. And so he was tested at that time. He always said he always wanted to do the Father's will and always had up to that point in time. But at that point, the Father's will and his will were not the same. The Scripture tells us that Jesus was perfected at the point where he submitted his will to the Father. The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 5, beginning verse 7, "...who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him." Notice, it says that he learned obedience. Well, the question might be asked, was Jesus not obedient before this point? Well, yes, he had been obedient, but going back to our illustration with Cole at at the beginning, he had been obedient because his will always lined up with the Father's will. It'd be like me telling Cole, go buy, here's five dollars, go buy candy. That's not a test. That's not a challenge. That's easy to do. And up until this point in time, his will had always lined up just with the Father's. It had always been just as he would have done. But at this instance, he had to learn obedience. Now was the test. Here was the challenge. Would he submit when his will was not the same as the Father? The text says he became perfect in that manner. He was made perfect in this instance. The word perfect here is a little different from our word perfect, although our, our meaning of the word perfect would apply here. The word our, When we think perfect, we think without a flaw. Uh, you know, nothing wrong with it at all. Uh, ideal. 
And all of those kind of descriptions would fit Jesus. But the word here, translated perfect in our English Bibles, means more accurately the idea of being full or complete. He was completed in this. As our Savior, as our perfect Redeemer, Jesus was made full or complete in the matter that he, his, his obedience was tested. Would he submit under this extreme trial? Would he do the will of the Father? And he did. Uh, without this test and, and the, the results that came forth, he would not have been fully qualified to be our Savior. But here he was made perfect. Of course, it says, in doing so, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. We rejoice in this outcome. We rejoice that this is the result and that we can have eternal salvation because Jesus obeyed the Father and provided the sacrifice for our sins. And so, we're dealing with the question, what do I do when His will is not my will? What we, ha what we have suggested so far is that we need to learn from the example of Jesus, that although it was His, his basic intention and desire to do what God wanted him to do, there was a time when that was tested. Jesus was victorious in that test when he submitted his will to the fathers and became our perfect Savior in the process. Well, now, let's spend just a couple of minutes talking about applications to us, uh, talking about how this applies in our lives. What about us? Well, much like Jesus did, we can claim that we want to do the Father's will. We start out by saying Jesus always talked about that. He always talked about what he wanted to do was the will of the Father. We say that too, don't we? I mean, that's the right thing to say, that our intention is to do the will of the Father. If we went around and asked everyone in the assembly this morning, is it your will to do what God wants? I hope everybody would say yes, and certainly that's what we ought to say. Uh, the Scriptures tell us that we should give that answer. In Acts chapter 2, we have studied often the events on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem when the church was established on that day. Peter and the other apostles preached on that day. And in that recorded sermon of Peter, the first recorded sermon of the New Testament era, uh, the gospel age, Acts 2, verse 36, he concluded his sermon by saying, God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Think about the expression that Jesus is Lord and Christ. First of all, talk about the second word there, Christ. You understand that Christ means the anointed one or the chosen one. Jesus was the promised Messiah. He was anointed or chosen to fulfill that role for mankind. And so God has made Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the one who can provide for you salvation. Now that's, that's fine. That's what we want, right? We want Jesus to be our Savior. But notice the first part of that. He has made him both Lord and Christ. He's made him both things. He's not just made him our Savior. He's also made him our Lord. Do you understand the, the word Lord speaks of authority, uh, the right to command and expect obedient response? The word Lord is sort of a generic term. Many in the Scriptures are referred to as Lord. It is simply a term that means a person in a position of higher authority who has the right to command and expect others to obey. Well, Jesus is our Lord. He's not just the Christ. He's not just our Savior. He's also our Lord. And so you can't accept that He's your Savior without also accepting that He is your Lord and He has the authority to command with the expectation that you will obey. And so should we desire 
to do the will of the Lord? Yes, because He is our Lord and Christ. In Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus said it's self-contradictory to call Him Lord, but not do what He says. Why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? You call Jesus your Lord, but you're not willing to do what He says? That doesn't even make sense. That's not even logical. And so, what are we going to do? Well, we claim that we want to do the Lord's will. That's our claim. Jesus made that claim too. But He proved it by what He did, right? The question is, will we prove it by our obedience? What happens when His will is not our will? We know what happened with Jesus. Uh, He proved Himself in the matter. He was obedient and perfected in His obedience when He submitted to the Lord. This is the real test for us too, right? The real test is not when we are told to do the things that are easy, pleasant, enjoyable. The real test comes when we have to make sacrifice, when it's hard, when it's difficult. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do when a conflict arises between what you know God expects you to do, but you have a different set of priorities, maybe some other activity that you'd rather engage in rather than do the will of God? What are you going to do when friends and family perhaps oppose you in living faithfully for the Lord? Are you going to submit to God or are you going to do the other thing? What are you going to do when there's uh, a conflict between what God would have you to do and your, and your job or your career pursuits? What are you going to do when your recreational interests conflict with your obligation to God? What are you going to do when your monetary concerns conflict with what you ought to do with God? What are you going to do when your own selfish interest is at odds with what God wants you to do. That's the time when we're tested, right? That's the singular point of our whole lesson this morning. When that test arrives, when the real test of obedience pops up in front of us, what are we going to do? We read earlier from Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, talking about Jesus, how He learned obedience and became perfect. He's the, he is, therefore, the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey Him. But right there is the key word. He's the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey Him. And again, what is that test of obedience? That test of obedience is not when it's easy. That test of obedience is when it's hard, when it's difficult, when it requires sacrifice. He will save you, but you must be obedient thoroughly and completely. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus said, Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. That's a pretty good summary verse for everything that we've had to say this morning. You can call him Lord, and you can generally, most of the time, do what he expects you to do. I would argue that most of the people in our acquaintance do that. Most of the people who make no serious effort at living the Christian life, typically, most of the time, do the right thing. But Jesus is not pleased at that level. He asks, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Or excuse me, here he says, it's not enough to call him Lord, Lord, but you have to do the will of the Father. And doing the will of the Father is honestly tested when his will is different from our own. So I hope these simple considerations, we can all be challenged to think about our lives and how we live from day to day. We know we have the perfect example of Jesus 
in this matter of obedience. And so the challenge is to us, will we be obedient when it's hard to do so? I hope that we can take that challenge seriously and think about applications of it in our own personal lives. We thank you for listening carefully to what we've had to say. We're going to conclude the lesson with a song of invitation. And in doing this, think about yourself and think about whether you've really been obedient. First of all, to those of us who are Christians already, are you really being obedient? Are you, are you, are you being sacrificially obedient to obey even when it's hard to do so? If you realize that you haven't done that and you've, you haven't been thoroughly faithful to the Lord, then you need to come back to Him in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help you with those prayers, we'd be glad to do so. Uh, let us know how we can assist you. If you're not yet a Christian, please understand that obedience is essential. The Lord has provided everything in His part. He's provided His own Son, Jesus, to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins, but you've been challenged. Will you obey? Upon hearing the truth about Jesus, will you repent, confess, and be baptized for the remission of sins? If you're subject to the Lord's invitation, we hope you'll come while we stand and sing this song. Uh,